ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It's more than two months since the first shots were fired in the Israel-Gaza war. Inside Gaza, civilians are living through a humanitarian catastrophe that's been described as apocalyptic. As the war has escalated, Australians and their families have been trying to get out. But while some have made it, others are being blocked. In this story, three of us have teamed up to figure out why. There's me, Max Chalmers. And me, Marty Smiley. And I'm Madison Connaughton. And we start on October 6, 2023. It's a clear, warm night inside the Gaza Strip, the narrow piece of land that hugs the Mediterranean Sea. 400 people have packed into a function centre in a busy neighbourhood of Gaza City. It's a wedding, and the hall is heaving with music. Australian woman Muna Saka is right in the thick of it. It was very, very nice. I felt like God wanted me to stay there to meet all of my family members. I haven't had the chance to meet them before. And it was very nice, beautiful night. Everyone were dancing, laughing and happy. Men stand in a circle, hands raised, kicking up their feet with the beat, their smiles beaming. Nearby, women in red, blue and cream headdresses are dancing. Muna doesn't leave the wedding until close to midnight. For her, it's a kind of farewell. She's been in Gaza for a couple of months now, a long way from Sydney, where her husband, children and grandchildren are waiting for her to return. She's due to start the journey home in two days' time. But the next morning, she wakes to a terrifying sound. When I wake up in the morning, around 6.40, and all of the rockets um, covering the sky, I don't know what's going on. Palestinian militants fired thousands of rockets into Israel overnight in a surprise assault by land, sea and air. I started to pack up my stuff. My husband called me and he said, leave Gaza now. I said, how? The militant group that controls Gaza, Hamas, has launched an unprecedented attack on southern Israel. In an act of terrorism, Hamas fighters break out of Gaza, attacking communal farms and massacring civilians and soldiers. Around 1,200 people are killed in Israel, including women, children and babies. There are also allegations women were raped as part of the attack. An estimated 240 people are taken hostage, overwhelmingly civilians. In response, Israel cuts off electricity and water in Gaza, as well as access to food and fuel. It starts hitting the Strip with a devastating bombing campaign. Muna witnesses it from her hotel window in Gaza City. The joy of the wedding quickly disappears. She would later be told that many of the people at the wedding have since been killed. And I met a lot of people I haven't seen them for more than like 10, 12 years. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, like um, most of those, like they, they died during the war. I can't even look at the pictures or to see any memory uh, to remember this night even. She has to get out of Gaza. 
So she leaves her hotel and joins her brother's family, his wife, his sons and their kids. Among the group is her brother's newborn granddaughter. She's only two months old. Over the next three and a half weeks, they take shelter wherever they can find it, sleeping in corridors and on spare mattresses. They use wet wipes to wash when the water runs short. When Mona goes outside, she sees bombed-out apartments and homes, now colossal piles of rubble. And everywhere she goes, there's a smell. And the smell of the dead people everywhere. When you pass to a building knocked by the Israeli. But she wonders whether there's anyone she can save. Sometimes I wanted to scream and said, hello, anybody there? Can I help? Anybody still alive? But no help. Since Hamas took control of Gaza in 2007, its borders have been tightly controlled by the two countries it's wedged between, Israel and Egypt. With Israel closing its borders after the October 7 attacks, there's now only one possible way for Muna to get out. It's a crossing that connects southern Gaza to Egypt. It's called the Rafah border crossing. It looks like an elaborate toll booth. As visitors arrive, they pass an imposing metal gate in the shape of a giant M. They continue towards a shabbier looking structure, not really a building, something more like a big rundown tin shed. This is the crossing point. Just beyond it is Egypt. But when Muna finally arrives, it's closed. She waits seven hours for it to open, but she's turned away. Eventually, she ends up staying in the southern city of Han Yunus. Two weeks later, she gets a message from a family member. Get to the border. Their car's almost out of fuel now, but her brother's taking her anyway. As she heads to the border, she's still not sure if she'll be able to cross. I reached the signal as soon as I get to Rafah border. I spoke to my daughter and my husband and said, you number, your name on the list and you number 19 and just go and wish you good luck, be strong. To be honest with you, I have no strength at all, at all. I was feeling myself like I'm 70 years old with lots of sickness, lots of sadness. I'm not able to move, to talk, um, to say goodbye for the good people and for my beloved one. And I don't know if I'm going to see him again or not. A very hard moment. At the border, there's desperation and confusion. People push up against a metal gate. And then a guard swings it open and the crowd surges through. Suitcases dragging across an open, paved courtyard. Mona's there with her brother. Only a lucky few will get past this point, and that all depends on whether your name is on the list. I said, yes, my name on the list. My name is Mona Carlson Sahir, and my number is number 19. I'm Australian citizen. I am holding Australian passport. 
and said, okay, okay, who's with you? He said, by myself. I said, okay, do you have luggage? I said, yes, I have one my, with my brother. So, okay, bring your luggage, hurry up, hurry up. And my brother was uh, looking at me like, uh, I, I can't, I can't forget that look, Yanni. I, I, I don't know, I can't describe it. Just happiness with sadness. He was so happy for me to leave. I said goodbye. I hugged him, his wife. And I wish him like, to be safe. And I told him, just go straight away before it get dark. He said, I'm not gonna leave until you get into the bus. I said, okay, I will call you. Muna waits in the terminal, alone, Australian passport in her hands. She's spotted by a journalist and they record her feelings in real time, just as she's about to cross. I'm glad that I'm leaving today and I would like to thank the Australian government, but I'm, I'm very sad as well at the same same time because I'm leaving my family behind um, with no food, no water. Muna keeps moving through the crossing and when she finally reaches the Egyptian side, she calls her brother. I called him and said, you can leave. Oh, take care of yourself, inshallah, I'll see you yani, very soon. Yani, a very emotional moment. Yani. He said, don't worry, I'm, I'm staying here. I said, no, go. He said, I can't. I said, why? He said, because the car out of petrol. And <laughs> I said, ya Allah. Her brother has just used his last bit of fuel to get Muna to the border. She doesn't know when she'll see her brother again, but she's made it out alive because her name, Munasaka, was on the list. The list. It's literally a list of names printed and taped to the window at the crossing. Before the Rafa crossing was opened, Egypt's foreign ministry was preparing for 7,000 people from 60 countries. On the first day it opens, around 500 people are listed to cross, including 34 destined for Australia. On day two, there are 600 people, Countries have been negotiating behind closed doors to get their citizens and their families on this list. But it's not entirely clear why some have made it on and others have been left off. Looking at the list gives you an idea of who's getting through and who isn't. Okay, I've just opened it on my computer now. I'm just scrolling through. There's hundreds of names on here. They're divided into columns. And they're organised by where these people are going, so I can see St Kitts and Nevis, UK, Canada, and then here's Australia. So this list, the columns also identify the people's citizenship status. And unsurprisingly, there are a lot of foreign nationals here and dual citizens, but also there's a lot of Gazans without citizenship to another country. Each line kind of tells a story. Khuri, Dabit, Al-Tarazi. I can see surnames repeated, sometimes up to ten of the same name. That's whole families getting out together. I can read their dates of birth too. One of the names here is a baby, born this year, two weeks after October 7. I can't see the parents' names here. When you put some of the list together and look at the family members of Australians who are getting out, you see more women's names than men's. 
So what are the rules for getting on the list and who makes the decision? One man in Melbourne has been trying to figure out that exact thing. His name is Amon. Ahlan. Ayman Dahlan is a Gazan-Australian who lived through two Palestinian intifadas, or uprisings, against Israel in the 1980s and early 2000s. And he's got the scars to prove it. It's one of the first things I noticed about him. Is this something that's happened to your eye? My eye. Uh, I've been shot in my eye from Israeli soldier. That was... Uh, when I was 13 years old. I was uh, going back from my school, going home, then uh, I don't know how did you notice that. <laughs> I never mentioned, but anyway. Uh, Amon's wearing a well-fitted suit and has the air of a self-made man. He's proud, tall, and in true Arab fashion, he oozes hospitality. But lately, something has been bothering him. There's a weight he's been carrying since war broke out in his homeland after the October 7th attacks. Since I started, I can't remember that I slept more than two, three hours a day. Until 3, 4 a.m. in the morning, sometimes 5 a.m., some people call me. So I answer the calls. The calls are from people in his WhatsApp group who are trying to get their families out of Gaza and into Australia. It started with just a few friends, sharing information about consulate assistance. But it's quickly become a vital community resource, with over 200 members across the country. Each one responsible for another five, at least four or five families. So you That's talk a about big, thousand families. That's a really big WhatsApp group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big, big group. That's mothers, fathers, sisters. Cousins. I just made this group only for visa visa matters. Just for the people, they need the help in visa. Up until recently, it's mostly been dual citizens like Muna who've made it through. But now, if you're an Australian citizen with family members in Gaza, you could apply for a visa. And if approved, the Australian government will try and get you on the list. For the people, I know they have a chance. Amon provides people with all the information they need to hopefully get their families a visa. From application requirements like ID cards and legal documents to sharing wait times and updates from DFAT, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. I repeat the same thing sometimes 20, 30 times in one hour. The same information. He's even taken leave from his job in order to be on call. There's no embassy for Palestinians in Australia, only a general delegation doing what it can. So people have come to rely on locals like Amon to share this information. You're an engineer and a business owner turned into a one-man consulate. Uh, yeah, because it's a... Look, whatever you are, whatever you are, whatever business you have, uh, it doesn't mean you are not a human. So I felt... A big responsibility uh, on my shoulders. That weight is the burden of a thousand unlisted names. You can feel the stress with every word that people say. Mm. You can feel the worries, you can feel the sadness, you can feel the uh, emotions. 
with every word. The work Amon's doing from his suburban Melbourne home with an iPhone and a messaging app is high stakes. And it's not just the calls that are keeping him awake. Some guy informed me. He said five of, uh, five of his family members. This guy, he were asking about them to how can he apply. Then he came this morning. He said, okay, guys, thank you. But you don't need to check anymore. He said uh, they passed away. They, they've been killed last night. For Ayman, every day that passes, every delay endangers someone's life, including the one person whose life he may cherish the most, his mother's. My mother, I offered her many times to come to Australia and stay with me. She said, no, I will never leave my land. Never, ever. She never thought about that. She didn't want to because, uh, I don't know, maybe we have different culture. Uh, She wanted to be next to my dad's grave and my brother's grave, and she wants to visit them, and she wants to stay next to her uh, brothers and sisters around the family. You know, 70 years old uh, woman, she wants to stay where she, she grown up. But as the war worsens and destruction is spreading, she's going back on a promise she's held her whole life. She's agreed to leave her homeland. So Ayman applies for a visa for her and for his sister, who was told to evacuate her home after warnings from the Israeli Defence Force. Within an hour, he gets a reply. I opened that email and I saw granted, visa granted. I was shocked. I, I started shaking. I couldn't speak. I couldn't do anything. I started jumping. Uh, I cried. The kids were very scared. They started to hug me. They never saw me crying. They never saw me like that. Mm. It was very emotional. But Amon knows from helping countless others that getting a visa is not the end of the process. And it's no guarantee you'll get through the border crossing. Every single uh, family, they have someone uh, blocked. Most of the males get rejected. Some cases we have females. Some some settings, it's very rare, but most of the cases are males. He's seen plenty of cases now where despite having an Australian visa, the men in the family aren't getting on the list. I have some uh, family, very old men, they approved his wife and daughter, but not the men. He's over 65 or 70 years old. They rejected him, mm-hmm. one of my friends. And some cases, they accepted the wife, but not the husband. They, I don't know, they tried to separate the families. They tried to, I don't know, I can't, I can't tell. I don't know what's mm-hmm. the reason. That means even if the Australian government does approve your visa, you can still be blocked at the border. So who has the power to knock people back? Who controls the list? We've got you for about 20 minutes, is that right? Yes, yes. This is Tim Watts, Australia's Assistant Foreign Minister and Amon's local MP. I really can't emphasise how significant an operation it is to get Australians to safety at a time like this. Tim Watts's department is operating a crisis response centre that's drawing in 450 staff and fielding more than 1,000 calls a week about Australians or their families in the war zone. He says it's been running 24 hours a day for weeks. And much of that effort has been focused on getting names on that list. But what about the people who are blocked? 
Is he saying what Amon is saying? That some men with an Australian visa are still struggling to get on the list? We, for the Australian government's approach, um, we don't make any kind of prioritisation like that. If individuals have been knocked back, which we have seen from those lists, um, we work to try and understand why that is. It's not always clear to us why those individuals are rejected. So when that's happened, um, our diplomats in the region, they, they seek information from Israel. Why Israel? Well, that's because even though the Rafa crossing is under Egyptian control, Israel also gets to vet the names Australia puts forward. From what we've been able to learn, here's how it works. Australia takes a list of names to an Israeli military unit called COGAT. Among other things, COGAT is responsible for issuing border crossing permits between Gaza and Israel. In this case, it's also playing a key role in deciding who gets through the Rafah crossing into Egypt. Essentially what it requires is sign-off from both the Israelis and the Egyptians. So Egypt can reject names too. As far as we know, though, it hasn't blocked any names put forward by Australia, while Israel has. We asked the Israeli embassy and COGAT for an interview. A spokesperson for the Israeli embassy in Australia provided a written response from COGAT, which said the border crossing between Gaza and Egypt is not under Israeli control. But, they added, that Israel wants to make sure that the passage from Gaza to Egypt is not used for the exit of Hamas operatives and other terrorist elements. We contacted two senior members of Hamas and asked about the group's role in the process and whether it had blocked people getting out. There was no response. We also contacted the Egyptian embassy, but didn't hear back. There's one name Amon has not been able to get on the list. His brothers. I said, why? They said uh, the Israeli denied to give. Uh, he got denied, like he couldn't get the permit. Amon's brother got a visa from Australia at the same time his mother and sister did, but he still hasn't been listed to cross at Rafah. My brother was, he has a, a permit to go to Israel itself. So as long as you allow him to go to Israel, it means he's clear. Tim Watts says the Australian government is trying to get to the bottom of it. So people like Amon's brother aren't left behind. This is a, a relatively new development that, that we're working to understand. Now, obviously, any rejection is challenging, given the, the dire humanitarian circumstances and the, the pressure and the anxiety felt by everyone. Um, but it's particularly difficult when it splits family groups um, and, and family groups have to make very difficult decisions about uh, whether to uh, move as a whole or, or have individuals moving. The work going on behind the scenes to get each name on the list is a diplomatic maze, one no country can solve on its own. We use all tools of influence available to us. Um, sometimes that's direct ministerial calls uh, with regional governments, direct ministerial calls with like-minded governments who have influence in the region. Um, sometimes it's officials, um, you know, calling in favours essentially, you know, building uh, and drawing on those relationships that they've built on the ground over many years. He says all that diplomatic wrangling is paying off. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been able to see some of the... The, you know, the messages that Australians and their families send to, to DFAT staff when they get their name on the list and then when they get to safety and just the, the pure joy and emotion and relief um, that, that you can see in those messages. It's just such meaningful, um, meaningful work. 
In Sydney, Munasaka is back at work for the first time in months. She runs an Arabic language program teaching kids at schools in Sydney's western suburbs. As she's showing me around one of the schools she works at, she gets a call. Hey, they, it's a uh, lot. They're calling me from Gaza. Do you want to take it? Yeah, take it, take it. I have to. Hello? Hello? Connection. Yeah, hello? Yeah, hello? Ah, a man? Ah, yeah. Keep Halek. It's her sister in Gaza. Her sister's calling her to get a message to their brother, who's also in Gaza. With fleeting internet and phone coverage, it's easier for them to speak to each other through Mona. OK, I have to get back to her. So I'll give her um, the address for my brother so she can maybe... Um, reach him or meet him somewhere. So, uh, yeah. Some of her relatives have visas and some don't. The thing is, even if they get visas and get on the Rafa crossing list, the family is split all across Gaza and has to make its way to the border. But as Israel's military campaign ramps up and moves south, getting to the crossing is more complicated and dangerous than ever. The Israeli Defence Force has ordered over one million people in Gaza to evacuate, packing them into ever smaller areas. Mona is sick with worry. My family, uh, I don't know what to say. Um, I'm, I'm in the mood uh, of, you know, kind of excitement to get them here as soon as possible. Um, I wish them to stay safe and... Um, my hope now, and the only hope, just to meet with them again and see them and hug them again. Inshallah. <laughs> with so many barriers to getting out of Gaza, she's desperate to see the war come to an end. Just saying now, just leave now and seize the fire. Yes. That's my hope and that's my concern now. This is the fail now. It's midnight and Ayman is sprinting in his dress shoes through the airport car park. So far, around 143 Australian permanent residents and their families have made it out of Gaza. And at Melbourne Airport, a plane is bringing two more home. His mother, and his sister, and he does not want to miss their arrival. That's her photo from inside. Waiting to get her baggage. No, no, she never been here. We couldn't manage to get her visa before, so it's good. she can see now. She can see the life you have here. Yeah, of course, it's a big difference, man. It's a big difference. Ayman's eyes are scanning the terminal gates in anticipation. <laughs> Suddenly, in a wheelchair guided by his sister, his mother emerges. Ayman grips his mother in an embrace that feels like a century in the making. 
And for the second time this week, he finds himself doing something his kids rarely see him do. He's crying. So is his mother and his sister. They're together again. How are you feeling, everyone? Yeah, it's... I don't know, man. I can't talk. He helps his mother out of the wheelchair and into a seat. She hugs him again, planting kisses on him with a force that only a mother can muster. She's very happy. She's very happy. Yeah, she's happy and sad. Happy because she sees us. She was expecting to die any time, and she ha- they have uh, rockets all the times around, so she didn't expect to survive. So she's very happy to, to, to come between us, but uh, she's still sad because her grandson, the other little kids, and my brother, sisters are, are still there. Ayman feels the same. I have mixed feeling. Uh, I don't know to be happy or to be sad. We are happy they are here, but we still worry about the rest of the family. And we wish they can do it quickly. I just want to go home. Amid the relief, a deeper pain is present. Gaza is still home. And now that they're out, will they ever be able to return? It's a question no one can answer yet. And in the last week, the number of Australian visa holders getting through has slowed to a trickle. As living conditions are becoming more dire by the day, hundreds remain trapped waiting for their names to make it onto the list. As they wait, the death toll rises. So far, more than 16,000 Palestinians have been killed, including 6,000 children. For people like Mona and Ayman, time is of the essence. Every second counts. While we are sitting here, I saw two of my family members killed in that second. We might lose family members any second, any time. We already lost. We don't want to lose more. Because every second count, it's life. It's lives of the people. Background briefing sound producers are Lila Schunner and Ingrid Wagner. Sound engineering by Russell Stapleton. Reporting by Max Chalmers, Madison Connaughton, and me, Marty Smiley. Fact-checking for this story was done by Tynan King. Our supervising producer is Mario Christodoulou, and the executive producer is Fanu Falali. You can subscribe to Background Briefing on the ABC Listen app. Thanks for listening.